Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. As Russia continues its onslaught against Ukraine, the number of Ukrainians pouring into neighboring countries is approaching two million, the vast majority taken in by Poland, their neighbor to the west. More than a million Ukrainians have found refuge there, including many Ukrainian Jews. By the time the invasion began three weeks ago, Poland's chief rabbi Michael Shudrich had already been preparing for the flood. The New York-born rabbi serves as Poland's point person for Ukrainian Jewish refugees. He sat down with my colleague and guest host this week, Dr. Laura Shawfrank, AJC's Director of Contemporary Jewish Life. Thank you, Manya. Rabbi Shudrick, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. I'd like to start by asking you to give our listeners some background about your work in Poland. You're American-born and educated. How did you end up as the chief rabbi of Poland? And what type of work do you do there? My interest in Eastern Europe started already way back when I was 18 years old, 1973. I traveled to Eastern Europe with a Jewish youth group on the way to Israel and became really fascinated, some would, would say obsessed, with what was really left. So I started traveling back to Eastern Europe in the 70s, uh, a half a dozen times. And um, when I finished my last position in 1989, I said, well, the world is changing in Eastern Europe. Maybe it's time to work in Eastern Europe. And by March of 90, I was working in Poland. Let's turn to the current situation. We at AJC have been very, very concerned with the emerging humanitarian crisis as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In fact, our CEO, David Harris, is on his way to Poland as we speak in order to get a sense of the situation on the ground and to learn how AJC can best provide assistance. We're also in the midst of a campaign to raise funds for humanitarian relief and to assist Ukrainian Jews who want to make Aliyah to Israel, as well as to help those who wish to remain in Ukraine. We actually made our first grant from the funds we have raised yesterday to Israel an Israeli humanitarian relief organization, which has set up operations in Moldova to assist refugees there. We'll link to more information on AJC's emergency fund in our show notes. Rabbi, we're eager to get a sense from you about what things look like on the ground in Poland. So let's begin big picture. It's interesting, I think, that Poland has taken in over half of the Ukrainians who are fleeing the war. Why do you think Poland has been so forthcoming in opening its borders? My first answer to that is, I don't know. We're too busy trying to help refugees to figure out why it's happening. And in a sense, I think right now we're in a crisis mode. There are hundreds of thousands of refugees coming over the border, as you said, something close to 1.2 million into Poland. So frankly, we don't have time to figure out why it's happening. All I can tell you is that the Polish government is getting this right. Polish government opened the borders, are helping the refugees. We, the small Jewish community of Poland, by the second day of the war, already had a crisis management team set up. We had a hotline with Russian and Ukrainian speakers. Anyone fleeing before or after they crossed the border could call us. We could advise them where to go, what to go. We already housed several hundred refugees, and we're looking to really expand our capability because more people are coming, and these people need a place to live. These people need a place to eat. We are now looking for ways to be able to produce on a mass level kosher food kosher meals, both for those refugees in Poland and also to be able to ship back into the Ukraine. There have been some organizations that are now sending food to Poland to go to the Ukraine. And simply, as it makes a lot more sense to make it right in Poland because we have everything you need. 
So that's also taking. And then also very important are psychological services. People had to make the decision to flee, leave behind all male relatives between the ages of 18 and 60, fathers, husbands, sons, grandfathers, making often a treacherous journey to the border, often waiting two or three days at the border to cross. We also need to help them with their dealing with the trauma they've experienced. So it's shelter, it's food, it's trauma. And then in a short while, be able to have these people start to think, well, where am I going to live my life? Do I want to make Aliyah? Do I want to try to go back to Ukraine? Do I want to live in Poland? Do I want to go somewhere else? What are the options? What are the possibilities? Result, we've also opened up our uh, Jewish school, the Lauder Marasha School, to all Ukrainian children to come, obviously, tuition-free. Our Hillel, the university organization, has converted their space into a day center where any refugee can come and just have a, a happy, safe, warm place with computers and toys for kids. And as we say, end, end, end. What's also in some ways fascinating that this is being done by a Jewish community that itself is rebuilding. For hundreds of years, Jews fled out of Poland. Now you have the historical irony, Jews fleeing into Poland, and we're there to help. That is quite a historical irony. Can you tell us just a little bit about the Jewish community in Poland? I know that you're running these relief efforts, that's the chief rabbi. How many Jews live in Poland? You're in Warsaw, and how many Jews live in Warsaw? The key thing to know about the current Jewish community of Poland is the following. Three and a half million Jews before the war. By 1944, five years into the Shoah, 90% of all already not alive, murdered by Germans and accomplices. That's so horrific, most people don't think. How many Jews survived? 10% survived of three and a half million. That means 350,000 survivors after the horrible tragedy. More Jews in Poland in 1946 than in the United Kingdom today. Where are they? The vast majority of the Jews leave Poland in the 25 years after World War II. If you want to feel safe saying the statement, I am a Jew, it makes good sense to leave post-Holocaust, Soviet-occupied, communist Poland. And so most Jews did, but not all the Jews did. And those that stayed basically agreed with those who left. Stay Jewish, leave communist Poland, stay in communist Poland, stop being Jewish. A couple of hundred thousand left, tens of thousands stayed, of which many give up their Jewish identity often to the extent of never telling their children who they really were, and eventually grandchildren. 50 years of hiding from 1939 to 1989. 1989, communism falls, and at that point, the not-so-young survivors are confronted with the question, do I feel safe enough today to tell my children, my grandchildren, my friends, colleagues, neighbors, that I'm really Jewish? Since 1989, thousands, and I would say probably tens of thousands of Poles have discovered they have Jewish roots. That's the story of Polish Jewry today. So the answer is, how many Jews are there? We don't know. But I think one can safely say 30 to 40,000. How many Ukrainian Jews have fled into Poland? That's even a harder question, because you have three groups, those who are making Aliyah. That much more or less we have a number. I mean, the Sochlin has a number. I, I don't know that number off the top of my head, but it's probably at this point a couple of thousand. Then you have the Ukrainian Jews that had family in Germany, Poland, in France, in England, the America, in the United States. And so they went to family. They were in Poland for a couple of days until they can get themselves together, and they went to family. We have no idea what that number is. And then we have those who are still in Poland. We only know those we have come in contact with. We don't know how many other Jews there are who simply found housing on their own and 
they're beginning to rebuild their lives. And I hope someday we do come in contact with them. What are the greatest needs that you see on the ground right now for these Ukrainian Jews who you're trying to help? Making sure they have a place to sleep and food to eat. And along with that, psychological counseling and education for children. In the longer term, will be employment opportunities and figuring out where they want to go. How do you find out that Jews are incoming? Is it the border officials that direct them to you? Like, how do you find that out? Either people call ahead of time. A rabbi calls saying, I have 52 people crossing the border roughly at 4 p.m. this afternoon. Can you meet them? Can you put them up somewhere? Or individuals that call before or after they cross the border. Relatives from abroad that say, I know that my three relatives are crossing. Where should they go? And so somehow we did succeed, A, with our hotline that it got out there. We're a small community. We're a re-emerging community, but it's not been the last two weeks. So people know some numbers. So they call and they email us and we do what we can to help. Jews have a lot of intergenerational trauma associated with fleeing our homes due to danger. Talk to us a little bit about what working with Ukrainian Jews in this crisis has meant to you. I mean, they're not fleeing because they're Jews, but they're still Jews who are fleeing. We're too much in the middle of it to reflect. We're not going 24-7 because everybody eventually does collapse and take a nap at night. But I would have to say that most of us have no time to begin to think about what we're doing because we get the next phone call that you know, there's a group of people at the border, seven people need to go somewhere. There are two elderly Holocaust survivors at the border. We need an ambulance and, and, and. And so I think right now we, the Jewish community of Poland, are really in the mode of helping, of looking what else we could do to help. And it's really not yet time for reflecting. Now, I could try to give you some very insightful thing, but I think that's more honest. I mean, I can come up with some pithy saying, which would maybe even be accurate. It's not about that. We're just in it. And so when a person is in a fire, they generally don't stop to meditate and think about what does it mean? That makes a lot of sense. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Rabbi Shudrick. I don't want to keep you any longer. I want to send you back to helping all those who are so in need of your help. We wish you so much Hatzlacha, so much good fortune in your holy work. And we join you in praying for an end to this brutal war. Amen. And I have to say that what I've really seen now, more than you know, my 66 years of life, how we, the Jewish people, we work for each other, we help each other. As it says, Amechad Levechad, one nation, one heart. And I really see it now in these most horrible of times, but yet in some ways inspiring. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining me today is my guest host this week, Laura Shaw-Frank, AJC's Director of Contemporary Jewish Life. Laura, we just celebrated International Women's Day. It is still Women's History Month. And next week is Purim. It seems appropriate to celebrate a woman who saved the Jewish people. (laughs) Um, But I know very little about this holiday beyond the hamantashen and heavy drinking, and costumes. Can you give us a little Purim primer? Absolutely. I actually love Purim so much, particularly because of what you said, this strong Jewish woman advocate, who I feel like inspires all of us to do our work every day. So what I want to focus on, actually, is 
the transformation of Esther into being a Jewish advocate. So the story of Purim, just very, very quickly, is that it takes place in ancient Persia, a terrible person who is in close cahoots with the king, King Ahasuerus, named Haman, decides that he is going to annihilate the Jews. He's like the first anti-Semite. And it's amazing. The language of the Megillah actually says, you know, there's this people that doesn't fit in. They're dragging down our nation, which is such an anti-Semitic kind of thing to say. Amazing for such an ancient text. And he decides he's going to annihilate the entire Jewish people. Lucky for the Jews, Queen Esther had been married to Ahasuerus after he sort of evicted his first wife. We won't get into the feminist issues there. We'll leave that aside. But after he evicted his first wife for refusing to dance at some party he made. So she now has this seat of power. And despite that fact, she's really, really scared to use it. When she becomes the queen, Mordechai, her uncle, tells her, don't tell anyone who you are. Don't tell anyone that you're Jewish. And so she keeps it a secret. She listens to him. She's very obedient. And then when Haman's plot comes to light and Mordechai discovers what's going on, he sends her a letter and he says, you need to save the Jews. And she responds and she says, I can't do anything. I, you know, I can't go talk to the king. I haven't been invited to do that. Um, they'll chop my head off. And Mordechai says these incredible words to her. He says, don't think that if you don't intervene, the Jews won't be saved. Don't think that you and your family will be safe. Maybe it is for this moment that you have ascended the throne. And in that moment, Esther wakes up. It's incredible. Like, you have to read it. She wakes up. In the next verse, she's no longer scared. She says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go into the king, and hopefully he won't kill me. And you're going to fast, and you're going to pray, and you're going to gather the Jewish people to support me, and we're going to take this on, and we're going to do it. And she goes from being an obedient, scared young girl into a powerful Jewish woman advocate. And she goes into the king, and she comes up with a strategy. And I won't go into all the details because we'll be here all day, but she saves the Jewish people. Wow, that's so interesting. I can really relate um, these days to Esther's story. I've been thinking a lot about transformation, about just the previous chapter of my life uh, as a single professional woman without children, without a husband, and, and really making that transformation in my own life. And Esther's really a good example of how both marriage and her Judaism empowered her which I think are two factors I'm really thinking about, and motherhood, of course, three factors that I've, I've been thinking about lately in terms of my own transformation. So thank you. You have just personalized Purim wonderfully for me. <laughs> I'm so glad. I have to, I like look forward to hearing those verses each year because it's amazing to watch someone find her voice because that's what you see. She finds her voice and she's able to stand up as an independent, brave, strategic thinker for the first time in her life. Even after being warned to keep it quiet, keep her Judaism quiet at first. Again, something I can relate to. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's actually an incredible thing. Something that it makes me think about is we talk on Purim about the concept of everything being turned upside down, v'naha fochu in Hebrew, that we turn things upside down. And everything on Purim is like turned upside down, like the death of the Jews becomes victory for the Jews. A day that could have been tragic becomes joyous and, and frivolous even. And indeed, I think that naha fochu really happens with Esther. She goes from being passive, obedient, and nervous to being not afraid to take risks, brave and strategic. 
And, and all it took was kind of this wake-up call from her uncle who reminds her, who helps her find that spark within her. And it makes me think also of the mentors that we have in our lives and how a good mentor can really help us access the strength that we have within us that we may not even know that we have. Very nice. Very nice. Well, in this upside down world that we are living in right now, Laura, (laughs) I wish you a Shabbat Shalom and a Chag Sameach. Thank you. You too. Shabbat Shalom and Chag Sameach. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to listen to AJC CEO David Harris as he takes on Vladimir Putin's ludicrous denazification claims justifying Russia's invasion of Ukraine and points to how Putin's behavior is reminiscent of 1938 Germany. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 